Well, good morning. It's a blessing to be here today. Uh, grateful for long-time relationship with Mark and Julie and through seminary and been able to be in your midst a few times, and I'm grateful for the work God is doing here in your lives and through you for his glory. Yeah, we live in a world that's complicated and dark and demanding, and may God give us strength to want his best to take place in our lives and in that world and trust in him in that process. We're going to look at Christ's prophet. You have, uh, I think, handouts or not? Okay, no handouts. That's okay. I have all of the outline points on the, on the PowerPoint. And so we're with Christ's prophet as Christ's followers, those who have been transformed by the power of the gospel. It's obvious why we give so much attention to Christ. The Bible spends a lot of time and space devoted to the promise of his coming, his birth and ministry in the first century AD, and to explaining the future where he'll bring to culmination his plan for the world. And the Old Testament presents Christ as prophet, priest, and king. We're just going to look at one of those today. Various Old Testament, New Testament passages will work through, and so they'll be evident in the outline of my presentation. And just to get us going, to help you see how big this topic is in the Bible, just even in the New Testament, listen to a handful of verses. John 4 after Jesus reminded the Samaritan woman that he knew the details of her marital history and her current relationship with a man who wasn't her husband, he said, she said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, John 4, 19. In John 6, Jesus transformed five barley loaves and two fish into enough food for over 10,000 people. It was the feeding of 5,000 men. Could have been 15,000. And after the gathered crowd saw this sign, the multiplication of that food for all of them, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world, John 6, 14. In John 7, Jesus gathered, taught the gathered crowd together that he was the source for living water. You'd never have to drink again because it was eternal transformation. Some of the gathered crowd said, certainly this is the prophet. In John 9, after Jesus gave sight to the blind man, the Pharisees asked the man who could now see what he thought of Jesus, and they weren't going to be too happy with the answer. The man boldly declared, he is a prophet, John 9, 17. The crowd who welcomed Jesus at the triumphal entry as he rode the donkey colt down the front of the Mount of Olives stated, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. In Galilee, Matthew 21, 11. And finally, even the religious leaders of Jerusalem who were applauding the arrest and the death of Jesus feared the possible reaction of numerous Jews since, quote, many of them regarded him as a prophet. Matthew 21, 46. Thanks. I'm hot blood. They must know that. So what can we learn about Jesus' role as prophet that should impact our understanding of him and learn some things about our own lives? Next slide. Somebody back there pushing the button. Yeah, there we go. So here, the simple sermon is up there. Yeah, it's bigger than it does for me. I, I would have a str struggle reading that. Uh, the simple sermon is, Prophet Christ reveals the character of God the Father to the world. And our big takeaway is that 
our lives as his followers should pursue that same goal, revealing the character of God the Father to the world. God calls each of his followers, us, to pursue lives. They have conversations that are based on his word and point to God's surpassing character. You think about that. God calls each of his followers to pursue lives and have conversations that are based on his word or sit within its value system and point to God's surpassing character. Well, that's a big, big, uh, important point of focus that should be in our lives. So through the sermon, I want us to consider and answer three key questions about Christ as prophet. First one is, what was the function of a biblical prophet? Understanding the Old Testament prophet foundation, what he did in the Old Testament will help us grasp certain aspects of Christ's ministry as prophet. Two, how did Christ carry out that prophetic function through his life and ministry, which again has a, has a foundation in the Old Testament? From the time of God's creation of the world, God called all humanity to be his image bearers, to show each other in the world around them his incomparable character. God called prophets to help their audience better understand the great and awesome God through their life and message. So God the Father wanted his created humanity to know clearly who he was, what he expected, and what he would do. He didn't want them to be in the dark. He wanted them to understand him. And then third, how does Christ... Is that up there? No, it's a sub-point, sorry. How does Christ's prophetic role connect with his long-promised messianic identity? And we're going to see how being a prophet lays the foundation for his role as the Messiah. So let's start with what was a prophet's function in the Old Testament. Both Testaments refer to various prophetic figures. Here are just a few. Abel, brother of Cain, Matthew 23 is called a prophet. Abraham, the very beginning of the covenant people. Genesis 20 calls him a prophet. Elijah and Elisha, we know them from the end of 1 Kings, the beginning of 2 Kings. Our prophets, authors of prophetic books, other individuals could be cited. A prophet, uh, the prophet office abounds in the Old, even in the New Testament. And I want you to realize the prophet given the most attention to in the Old Testament was Moses, the leader of God's chosen people. I'm going to read a couple of verses from Deuteronomy 18. If you have time to turn there, find if not, just listen. Here are two verses from Deuteronomy 18 where Moses is explaining the bad, the, to avoid false prophets, and this is what God has in mind to accomplish through biblical prophets. Verse 15, Deuteronomy 18, 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you, Moses is saying, from your brothers. It is to him you will listen. Verse 18, I will rise, raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses writes, that God is saying, I will raise you a prophet Raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So I want you to realize that a prophet, that God demanded that a true prophet would function as God's mouthpiece, like Moses had done. On the one hand, Moses envisions a number of prophets that are going to be happening throughout Israel's history, who will call his people to a life of loyalty and obedience. But beyond that, in a more climactic way, Deuteronomy 18 points to the coming of the ultimate prophet, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that truth becomes more obvious to us in both Old and New Testament. The prophet was someone chosen by God to speak God's truth 
to his subjects, to his followers. The prophet taught and preached a message that was totally grounded in God's message to his people. And it's important to realize that the authority for a prophet's message was not based on who the prophet was or what he thought on his own. That authority was based on the perfect source of his message, the creator of the world and the Lord of his people. By the way, Mark and I are prophets. And that's a whole other story. I think that um, a prophet had unique authority in biblical times. If he didn't, what he said didn't come true to him. So I, I'm a preacher of the word, a very, very small, tiny way. You know, he can be tiny, 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 small, small p prophets. But the, the just as it was a lofty calling, and God wanted them to live and speak in a way that pointed to him. So we've seen a prophet's function in the Old Testament, New Testament. That just lays a foundation. Let's, let's move on to the second main point, and that is Christ as prophet revealed the character of God the Father to the world. And again, we're going to, I wonder why, is the Old Testament. God. We're going to lay a foundation for this truth in the Old Testament before we get to the New Testament. That's because the Bible does that. And the first truth is, um, yeah, next slide. I'm not sure what happened. Okay, there we go. God created humankind to put his matchless character on display. The idea of pursuing lives that would advertise God's surpassing character to each other in the surrounding Bible is, in the surrounding world is Bible-wide. It begins in the book of Genesis, the very beginning of human existence from the very get-go. This is a truth. So in Genesis 1, after speaking heaven and earth into existence, he prepared the earth for habitation. In the first three days of the creative week, he created light and the atmosphere around the earth. He caused fertile land to appear, one massive land mass, and the rest was water. Then he gathered the water to one large ocean. After the third day of creation, the heavens and the earth lay in stillness. The skies, the land overgrown with vegetation, the vast oceans all lay empty, but capable of supporting life. Then in the fourth to six days of creation, God filled his handiwork. He placed a vast number of heavenly bodies in space, filled the sky with birds and the sea with fish and animals. On the sixth day, he spoke into existence all sorts of animals to inhabit the land, every kind you eat that, that exists, or a version of it, a beginning version of it. Like the, and then, then he finally formed at the end of, toward the end of chapter one, on the, as part of day six, he formed a human being. Adam, as a pinnacle of his creative work. Like the animals, Adam was formed from the ground, given provision of food, blessed with fruitfulness. But God had special intentions for Adam. Genesis 1.26. In Genesis 1.26, according to most English translations, God affirms this. Most translations say this, that God said, Let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness. I'm going to suggest to you a close but slightly different translation that I, I think is more appropriate. I would translate it, let us make mankind as our image according to our likeness. And the second part of that expression, according to our likeness, the Lord is, yes, indeed, affirming that there's a certain degree of likeness between God and humankind. And that likeness sets mankind apart from the rest of creation, from plants and in animals and creatures, our personhood, our rational thought processes, the 
The fact that we have an eternal life principle, that we have the capacity of fellowship with God is part of what sets us apart from the animal world. But the first part of that expression, as our image, the Lord is not just saying that he created man in or according to the image of God as great as that is. He's affirming that man is, mankind is the image of God. So this, the expression, let us make mankind as our image, according to our likeness, is not just a statement of essence, according to our likeness, but it's also an affirmation of function as our image. The Lord is not simply expressing what mankind is like, according to our likeness, but what he created him to do and to be as our image. God created mankind to function as his image bearer. He intended that human life would be a reflection of God's nature and person. From the moment of creation, it's so important to this, from the moment of creation, that human beings would function as his representatives on earth. Humanity's role as God's representative was meant to impact the surrounding world, starting near and moving out from there. Each person was to manifest God's amazing character in their dealings with all of creation. So Genesis 1, what did we learn? That God desired to have mankind serve as his representatives, to make him big before the world to glorify him. Now I'm going to move on here to the prophets more specifically, but there's all kinds of things to think about that relate to my daily life and yours as well. Do I think about life with the get up in the morning about, Lord, how, how can I help people around me, my wife, my kids, my colleagues, whatever, know you better by being a reflection of who you are today? All right, so here's another foundational truth that helps us understand part of the Christ ministry as prophet. Yahweh expected his prophets to point to him through their lives and their message. They aren't just predictors of the future. They were meant in their lives and their message to help God's people have a better awareness of who he, he was, who he is, to motivate them and enable them to reflect him to the people around them. So through the lives and speech, biblical prophets were to convey to their audience a vivid and clear understanding of their great God, who God is, what he does, what he will do. And, and their message was to be anchored in the character, activity, and the revealed truth of the in, incomparable, all-powerful God. Through their lives and their message, the prophets were to reveal that amazing and incomparable God to their hearers. Now, I understand I said that Mark and I aren't prophets, and that's totally true. But when you think about just a, a brief takeaway of that is that doesn't mean we have to speak Bible every moment of the day. But our lives and our conversations should all fit within God's value system. Because all kinds of things that we do and, and what we talk about are opportunities to help God's people around us see the difference that God has made in our lives through Christ, to know him better, to see who he is in a world that defines him so badly. All right, back to the script here. So, um, so in several passages... Here, when we're thinking about this specific issue, the prophets emphasize a very important truth. And hang with me here. Don't uh, wonder what in the world you're talking about. I'll explain. God himself does not play hide-and-seek with his creation. 
It isn't like, I'm complicated, figure me out. He doesn't play hide and seek with his creation, but reveals himself through his prophets. He wants his people to know him through his, his character and his actions. He wants them to have a clear understanding of what he demands of them. Our God does not leave his followers wondering about his character and expectations. Now listen to God's own words here, the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2, verse 31. Listen to God's own word to hear his commitment to reveal his character and activity on behalf of his people. This is part of an indictment against this covenant people for their penchant to rebel. And to just hear the angst of the prophet Jeremiah as he relates this divine sadness triggered by Israel's continued rebellion. Jeremiah 2, verse 31. Oh, and you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel, a land of thick darkness? This is in a pretty tough chapter where God is calling his people to repent of their sins and actually be those who trusted him and expect him to be the God he promised to be. And they're not living that way. So through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord is asking whether he has been unclear, unresponsive to his chosen people. Was he an absentee or unconcerned God? Was it, could his divine failure to be in their lives be the cause of their rebellion? He's a do-nothing, reveal-nothing God. Well, of course, the answer is no. In this passage of wilderness, he had said, Have I been a wilderness to Israel, a land of thick darkness? In this passage of wilderness is a scary place, hostile to life, without an obvious route for travel. Without water or guidance, the traveler would be doomed. What would it be like to be just dropped into a place of dense darkness? You're blindfolded. They put you in a place of dense darkness. You've never been there before. They take off the blindfold and say, figure it out. Is that how God operates with his people? In that case, you would never find your way out. But the truth, praise God, was that God in fact, was not the absent God who left his followers on their own in the wilderness for a dark place. Instead, he revealed who he was, he, what he wanted from them. Beyond that, in light of all that Yahweh had provided for and done on behalf of his people, their continued rebellion makes zero sense. Instead of being a dark and foreboding God, he revealed his character to them in abundance through their history by intervening repeatedly in their own lives as a nation and a people. So God is a God who isn't playing hide-and-seek. Now, that may not make a lot of sense to you, but if, if we were to go through, and I wouldn't bore you with this this morning, ancient Eastern literature, we read what worship of those pagan gods was like. The worshipers had zero idea of their God. Their job was to feed the God. Do what he wanted, which they didn't really know what that was. But our God, in an absolutely countercultural, radical way, and through his, through his actions and through his revealed character in, in his word, and what his, what his interaction with our, his people demonstrates to us, wants his people to know who he is. It's a divine priority. Now we're going to move on to Micah chapter 6. Turn there. And so uh, this is a kind of a prophetic lawsuit. And I'm just going to jump into part of the passage. So in Micah 6, 1 to 8, the prophet Micah brings a covenant lawsuit against God's covenant people because of their ongoing rebellion against the Lord, verses 1 and 2. And now, 
when you, when you see the stuff in red there, the point is of those mountains and stuff, just I'll explain that in a minute. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. So they're the witnesses that are listening to what he has to say. He's calling them to testify. For the Lord has an indictment against his people. He will contend with Israel. And by the way, those mountains and hills, the point of them being called is they were present. They're kind of these passive personified witnesses that when God established the Mosaic, or I prefer to call it the Israelite covenant, back in the time of Moses, they were there. They heard God's people say what the Lord said. This is what he's expecting of them. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They embraced the covenant relationship he offered them as if they were happy recipients. In Prophet Micah's calling us people to remember that they made that commitment in front of witnesses. And, and next slide. Their penchant to rebel in this passage against the God who cares for them in concrete ways was mystifying. You think about it. I mean, when you're in a committed relationship and you, you're, you're married to somebody who is just amazing and their love and selflessness and sacrifice in your behalf, husband or wife, it just lights the fire of your heart to honor the vows you've made to that person and to honor God in the way you love and care for that person. And they have treachery jump in. And that situation is like, what in the world? It's mystifying. Now listen to Yahweh's heart-wrenching question in verse 3. Answer, my, my, people, my people, answer. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me or testify against me. The idea there is, could it be that God's failure to clearly reveal his expectations for them and never intervening in their lives was the cause for their rebellion? He puts the spotlight on himself. Do I fail? Am I the loser, God? Am I the God who hasn't intervened in human history that has revealed myself to you? Next slide. So what the Lord does in the next few verses, this one I want to get to here is this part of the sermon. The Lord answers this question. In verses 4 and 5, by giving four clear examples of his ongoing covenant care for them. These are evidences that, no, God, as a matter of fact, has intervened in human history. God is a, an amazing, gracious, loving, powerful, and promised big, deliver big God. So verse 1. Verse 4. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. At, at the time envisioned by the prophet Isaiah, uh, Micah, back to the time of Moses, Egypt was one of the most powerful empires of the world. One of the most powerful empires of the world. The Lord here reminds his people that he had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. He had delivered them from a predicament from which there was no hope for human deliverance. He redeemed them out of Egypt. Second one, 4b, I send Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you. Well, the, the point of that is, is when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, Exodus, and as he's taking them toward the Red Sea, where he will do this great miracle, he didn't just leave them on their own. He gave them capable leaders who brought them through the parched and barren wilderness to the brink of the promised land, that whole way. He gave them leaders who would, he would, who would, who would address their hearts, who would guide their, 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 their following the Lord's kind of glory, to trust in that God for food and drink as they went 
to receive what God had promised them, a promised land. Sorry, my finger touched something and wanted to hold a different part of my notes. Probably Mark's fault. Um, almost. Third, next slide, my people remember, verse 5, remember what Balak, king of Moab, proposed and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him. Now, next slide. So, in this map, you have, in the bottom right, you have this red box where you have Baal, Peor, the place just mentioned, the plains of Moab go all the way further north, but you, you have Baal Peor, and you have Balaam, top left, uh, plays the moment going to come and try to curse God's people. All right, so in the book of Numbers, Balak, the king of Moab, thought he could prevent the success of God's people by having a prophet, yes, a false prophet, pronounce curses on them like it would be a, a magical thing. He'd be able to stymie God by having a false prophet pronounce a curse on God's people. And to his dismay, in four episodes, four prophetic oracles where Balaam was trying to curse God's people, the Lord frustrated the vile intentions of the king of Moab and his false prophet Balaam, even provided messianic prediction through the lips of that false prophet. The Lord demonstrated his ultimate power over history and pointed to the future coming of the promised Messiah by changing what a bad king and what a false prophet wanted to do against his people to speak encouraging words to his people. He wanted his people to understand that he was a God who keeps his promises and would bring his promised plan to pass. And then four, next slide. In the middle of verse five, it says, and what happened from Shatim to Gilgal? Well, you don't all know what that is, right? Next slide. So here we have similar map, but over the right side is Transjordan. You have Shatim. On the left side is Gilgal, verse Jericho. In between, what do you have? You have the Jordan River. Well, what happened from Shatim to Gilgal? God had brought them out of Egypt through the wilderness, even some punishment along the way. They came up the right side, the, the east side of the, of the Jordan River, and they're, they're camping there in the plains of Moab. And what was all that for? He was going to deliver into their hands through a unique set of circumstances the land of promise that he had he, he, he assured Abraham would be his, a national land of the blessing. And so Shittim is on the right side, Gilgal is on the left side, part of the land of promise. When the Israelites crossed the Jordan River at flood stage, the river was at least a mile wide. If you've been to Israel before, it's kind of unimpressive. There's a whole flood plain there. I can't go into it here. But this, this was a, a miracle similar to his crossing, bringing God's people across the Red Sea. God had brought his covenant people across the Jordan River in this scenario to be able to bring to fulfillment that part of his plan because he's a God who delivered big and promised big. It's one of the most unparalleled miracles of the Old Testament. He delivered them from slavery. It would not have happened without his intervention. He provided them leaders who directed their hearts and guided their travels from Egypt to the promised land. He demonstrated that he alone is God he alone predicts and brings to pass history, not Balaam the false prophet. 
He brought them across the flooded Jordan River, once again demonstrating his awesome power and his commitment to bring his promises to pass. So punchline, next slide. Of all these four examples I've just summarized, why did he do all of that? In, in verse 5 of Micah 6, end of the verse, so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. They weren't just events in history, things you put in a filing cabinet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah the dry dusty history. Yeah, God did that. No, Yahweh wanted them to know and wholeheartedly embrace who he really was as their covenant Lord. They may be wondering why I haven't labored this point so much. I'm trying to stay in the Old Testament and away from the New Testament as much as possible. No, not at all. I want you to see, as I need to see, that even in the Old Testament, God sought to clearly reveal his identity, his character, and his attributes to his people through the prophets. It was essential for his followers to have a growing and life-impacting understanding of who their great God was if they're going to live the life he called them to live. And the prophets were a tool to reveal the great God of the universe to his people. He didn't leave them in the dark. He didn't play hide-and-seek. So we've seen the Old Testament foundation for what a prophet was. We just looked at Christ. We're looking at the Christ as prophet revealed the character of God the Father to the world. He created human kind to put his matchless character on display. He expected prophets to point to him through their lives and message. Next slide. Let's turn to Jesus' life and ministry as prophet, where Jesus' prophet provided the clearest possible picture of the God of Israel. Look at John 14, 1 to 9 if you want to. I'll, I'll read those passages here as well. So in John 14, 1 to 9, in the wake of telling his disciples once again, he'd been doing this in Caesarea Philippi, several chapters away in, in Mark. It's right in the midpoint of the book of Mark. In the wake of telling his disciples once again that he was soon to suffer and die at the hands of Jewish religious leaders, he tells them, I'm not just checking out. He's, he not, he'll would not just leave them, but prepare a place for them. John 1 to 3, verses 1 to 3. John 14, verses 1 to 3. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And you know the way... And you know the way to where I am going. And he's saying this to his 12 disciples. Well, they'll lose one here along the way. Verse 5, Thomas, yeah, that guy. Well, we'll, we'll meet him later. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So Jesus provides a powerful answer to Thomas's questions. It doesn't well, he says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't directly answer the exact location question, GPS coordinates, but he emphasizes that he is the ultimate way to be where he is going. Don't worry about it, Thomas. If you have a faith relationship with me based on the, your belief that God, the eternal God, and provide the eternal resolution to your sin problem, we'll take care of that. Jesus then talks about his prophetic role, his providing his followers a clear understanding of his Father's character. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him 
and have seen him because throughout his life he had said, you know me, you know the Father. Then Philip jumped in with his own question. Philip said to him, Lord, just go ahead and show us the Father, and it is enough for us. The video that's playing in my head of this conversation, Jesus, I can imagine him just like taking a deep breath, maybe shaking his head, preparing to emphasize a point he'd made several times before already. Jesus, in verse 9, said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. A couple of chapters before, chapter 12 of John, verses 44 and 50, Jesus had provided a, an amazing summary of his God-given mission to God's chosen people in the larger world. Verse 44, Jesus cried out, The one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me, my Father. And the, one, and, and the one who sees me sees him who sent me. Verse 49, For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command as to what I should say and what I should speak. I know that his command is eternal life, so the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. By being, his punchline point here is by being the God-man that has taken on human flesh, being God's prophet and teaching biblical truths, living a life of sinlessness in preparation for providing the theological foundation for their salvation, Jesus took truths about God the Father that may have seemed theoretical and made them concrete. His unparalleled life, his perfect sinlessness, his powerful teaching, his miraculous work provided a visual display of God's identity and character. Then we correctly Talk about God's intentions for us to involve our pursuit of Christ-likeness. Well, way beyond that purpose and its completeness and effectiveness, Jesus, as the ultimate prophet in his life and ministry, presented a life-sized image of his Father in heaven to all who heard and saw him. He didn't just preach truths and teach truths about God, he provided the epitome example of the incomparable character of that God. Like the Old Testament prophets in his prophetic role, Jesus pointed to his heavenly Father. Through his teaching miracles of life, Christ provided an amazing display of God's surpassing and incomparable character. Christ was the ultimate prophet who provided a clear demonstration of his Father's character and intention. So, what was the prophet's function in the Old Testament? New Testament it was to, by, to be the mouthpiece of God, to speak what God had given him, that God defined message in a life. We've seen Christ's prophet reveals the character of God, the Father of the world. We prepped for that by Genesis. God said, let us make mankind as our image. That's a core value from the very moment of creation. God wanted people. And then after Genesis 3, Christ followers to live in a way that advertises character to each other and the world around them. And then his commitment to reveal himself, seen in the prophets, that he intervenes in human history repeatedly to, to let them know who he is. And then Christ himself. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, before we move on, just think about that. Well, what should be the most fundamental core value of my life? Your life. We're going to come back to this. The people will understand our awesome God better by the way we engage with them in this life, those near and those far. 
Next slide. Last point, Christ as prophet paved the way for understanding his messianic identity. This was foundational to them embracing him for, for who he was, the Messiah promised by God. And we're going to connect the ministry of two prophets here, Elisha in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New, not just because I'm a geeky Old Testament guy, because the Bible does that. So let's take a, take a, look, at, take a look at 2 Kings 4. Go ahead and turn to 2 Kings 4, verse 8 is where we'll start. So let's take a look at 2 Kings 4, then we'll prepare to jump over to Luke chapter 7 and consider how Jesus' role as prophet paved the way of his day for them to grasp him as the promised Messiah. So first we're going to go to 2 Kings 4, 8 to 37. Elisha and the couple from Shunem. So while you're looking at him, to summarize the narrative in a minute, I'm going to not read through the passage, I'm going to just hop, skip, and jump and summarize the narrative and kind of camp on a couple of verses at the end. Like Elijah, the prophet before him, Elisha had a ministry to the rebellious ten northern tribes of Israel. If you remember Israel's history of it divided into two, two southern tribes, Judah, ten northern tribes, Israel, ten northern tribes, loser, 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 king. It was, uh, it was given to wickedness. Part of Elijah and Elisha's prophetic ministry to these rebellious Israelites was to remind them of the power and character of their covenant Lord, Yahweh. You see, they were given over to the worship of the god Baal, Baal. And that god Baal, he wants them to understand that Baal was not a do-nothing, non-existent, empty windbag god. Unlike that empty windbag, Baal, Yahweh did exactly what he promised. Yahweh, or Baal, allegedly promised big, but clearly delivered nothing, non-existent. God promised big and delivered big. He was powerful. He was the God who makes history happen. So Yahweh was the all-powerful God who repeatedly intervened in history in amazing and undeniable ways. And he sent Elijah and Elisha to minister his prophets to the northern tribe, ten tribes, to bring them back from the brink of extinction. He wanted them to understand him better, to help them realize that what they're chasing after is dust and ashes. When the God of gods, the only one who exists, the one who makes history happen, the one who is Surpassing character is the one they should be worshiping. It's the next slide. So we see Elijah's hometown here in the bottom right, Avel Mahola. And this is the blue line is going into the Jezreel Valley. And notice the red box, Shunem. So Elisha lived in the Jordan River Valley, just south of the east entrance of the Jezreel Valley in a town called Avel Mahola. His ministry travel often took him west into that, where that blue line goes, into the strategic Jezreel Valley, ICH, the International Highway passes through it. Anyway, next slide. The next slide shows the originally passed by in his travel, the bottom right, Ava Road is part of that valley. I could put the blue line there, I didn't. But then he goes into where the valley widens out and notice the red line under Shuna. He would pass by Shuna regularly on his travel, stopping here and there. Uh, between his home and heading to Mount Carmel or other places that the Lord had directed him. In verses 8 to 10, I'm just going to summarize the passage here. At time, at time passed, verses 8 to 10, a well-known woman of Shunem provided Elisha meals here and there as he traveled by the town. Eventually, she and her husband said, hey, let's build a little small hut on the top of our flat roof of our house, a, a little room, like a bedroom, where Elisha could lay down if he wanted to. He could get out of the sun. He could take a nap, whatever, because he's doing a lot of traveling. So they do that as an act of kindness. In verses 11 to 17 of 
2 Kings 4, Elisha wanted to show his gratitude for this couple's ministry to him, and eventually, since they were childless, he asked God to give them a child. They hadn't had children, and it appears that they were beyond the age where they'd expect to be able to. Verses 18 to 29, several, 18 to 25, several years later, as the boy is old enough to go out with his dad in the fields and work, during the day he experienced severe head pain and was sent home to his mom, sat in her lap where he died. And there's some very interesting things to read here, but let me move on. She laid him on the bed in Elisha's room, got a, a donkey, and headed to Mount Carmel to see Elisha. Elisha eventually, when he saw her come and received her, found out what had happened. He returned with the Shunammite woman to her home, and eventually God brought her son back to life through Elisha's actions. When the passage ends kind of anticlimactically in verse 36, to 37, the very end of the passage, if you're there, follow along. Elijah called to Gehazi, his servant, and said, Call the Shunammite woman. He called her, and she came. Then Elijah said, Pick up your son. She came, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground, and she picked up her son and left. Next slide. Even though verses 36 to 37 seems underwhelming, it's kind of like, kind of this transaction, he's here, take him home, Whatever. I'm expecting backflips. I'm expecting fireworks in the sky, right? Even though these verses might seem underwhelming, there's no doubt that an event like what happened at Shunem by Elisha, God through Elisha, bringing that little boy back to life, would have become part of the local memories of the area. You move into town, hey, what's been happening in Shunem? I don't know about lately, but boy, there was a story a hundred years, a few hundred years ago when this happened. Did you ever hear of that happening anywhere else? It would have been part of just the local history of the area. Through the prophet Elisha, Yahweh had restored to this young boy life. The only child of an otherwise childless couple. What an exciting day that would have been. That, this young boy was theirs only by God's initial intervention by enabling the mother to conceive and then later by restoring life to the boy. Intervention in human history. Seemed to be out of just random. But look at next slide, Luke 7, 1 to 17, where we have Jesus and a dead young man from Nain. Let's move on to an account of the New Testament Gospels that connects the prophet Elisha's ministry in 2 Kings 4 with the ministry of Jesus in Luke 7. After finishing background here, after finishing the Sermon on the Mount in Luke 6, Jesus returned to Capernaum, his home base of ministry. He quickly heard of the centurion's servant who was near death, not even going to his house, without even going to his house, the Lord restored the servant to full health. He is the one, this prophetic figure, who God could do amazing things through, and he's done it already in his ministry. That brings us to the gospel narrative, the rest of chapter 7, that connects with Second Kings 4. So just we're going to go to verse 11 here in just a minute. Luke provides for us, you see this map here, up on the right side, number four, the arrow, we have Capernaum. And then you have these lines coming down with a yellow line. Notice from number four, the yellow line comes down to a nowhere place called Nain, Willow Village, on the other side of the hill of Moray. So Luke provides us no rationale for Jesus embarking on this 25-mile journey from Capernaum to the town of Nain. It's like out of the blue. So why go there? Who knows whether the crowd even traveling with Jesus on knew where 
they were heading traveling south from Nain. I imagine you have an excited crowd of followers of Christ taking this journey. You can imagine them talking about all kinds of things, Jesus' recent teaching and miracles, maybe receiving additional lessons along the way. It was a joyful crowd of travelers there with Jesus, who, uh, who was in their, their kind of his disciples, not the apostles, but they're his followers. But as they near Nain, they don't know what's coming. Jesus does. As they near Nain, they, they, there's in the same time as they're coming down the road, there's a procession coming out of the city of Nain with a very different temperature, mourning rather than rejoicing. They're part of a funeral procession carrying the dead body of a young man of their town to his burial place. His mother, a widow, now even lost her only child, is weeping as she walks with a large crowd that is part of the sad procession. She has no idea that a God-orchestrated event is about to happen. So let's read the first part of this passage, if you've turned there. If not, listen to me. Luke 7, 11 to 15. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Don't weep. Didn't say it harshly. Don't weep. Then he came up and touched the coffin. Some translations have beer, B-I-E-R, the coffin. And the bearer stood still, carrying along on some kind of a thing to carry the coffin on. And he said, can you imagine watching this? Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, there's a few obvious similarities between this passage and 2 Kings 4. The son died earlier, much earlier than one might have expected. He was a young man. He was the only son she would likely have since she was a widow. In 2 Kings 4, husband and wife were beyond childbearing years. Here are some clear differences in emphasis. Jesus chose to travel to Nain as part of his messianic ministry. God is guiding this because he has a message he wants people to grasp and understand that helps them receive him as the Messiah. Although he was a great teacher, he manifested a heart that matched his father's in heaven. He had compassion on her, specifically. His saying, don't weep to her, were not harsh and empty words. He was going to do something about the cause to her weeping. Here's the biggest difference. He called the dead man to life. He spoke and immediately the dead, dead man was given life. And then Jesus restored him to his mother. Now, next slide. Verses 16 to 17. Notice how the people of Nain, as well as the entire region, responded. Fear. This is not the kind of I'm, I'm terrified fear. It's amazing reverential awe fear. Fear sees them all and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us. And God has visited, intervened with his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country, everywhere. Next slide. Think about the geographic connection of these two towns, Shunem and Nain, maybe two or three miles apart on one side of the hill of Moray and the other side of the hill of Moray. One had been located on one side, the other, the other side. I would suggest to you that Elijah's raising the Shunemite's son, Dead son back to life, narrated in 2 Kings 4, would have been part of the 
history of the town, and about 700 years later, Jesus then raised a dead young man back to life. And the people of Nain are connecting the dots when they declared, a great prophet has risen among us. They conclude from this amazing event that Jesus was a prophet of God. They're thinking back to that story that Nain is the only one who had this story. And then Jesus comes and brings this young man back to life, restores him to his mother, demonstrating he is a prophet, a prophet of great authority. Now, they haven't connected all the dots, it doesn't seem. They don't see he's the Messiah yet. They probably regarded him as that ultimate prophet, one of those prophets Moses talked about back in Deuteronomy 18. I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I'll put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. Even if they hadn't gotten to where they said, oh, he's the Messiah, that's coming later in Christ's ministry. Christ's role as prophet was part of the way he helped his people grasp his messianic identity, preparing the way for the consummation of his first coming, which is initially sad but powerfully important death, burial, and then resurrection. Next slide. So what do we learn about Christ as prophet? First, along with the rest of the biblical prophets, Christ's life from teaching was in total agreement with God's revelation of himself through his revealed word. He functioned as God's mouthpiece to the Israelites of his day. He spoke his father's message and spoke it with authority. What can we learn from this reality for us? In a world with a confusing array of empty authority sources, voices talking but saying nothing of significance, we need to have God's word as the anchor for our lives, the, provide the contents for our belief, serve as the impetus for our conduct. It isn't like we have to speak biblical verses every moment of the day, but our lives and all parts of our lives should fit within God's value system ultimately because there's a purpose God has in mind for us we'll talk about here in a minute. Second, is God's prophet? Thanks, I didn't say next. You've been doing a great job up there with the PowerPoint slides. As, as prophet, God's clear message and amazing conduct advertised God the Father's surpassing character to everyone he heard who heard and saw him. He didn't just toss out theoretical ideas. He didn't just tell them to do one thing and then let them figure it out. No, he lived out what he taught. He showed them how to live in a way that made prominent the surpassing character of his Father in heaven. Jesus had said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he lived. Brothers and sisters, we... You and I, I, I need to as well. We need to own that truth and model our lives after that core value in Christ's life and ministry. We need to realize that putting God on display, how we talk, how we act, our attitudes, our pursuits, our ambitions, the primary goal in all of that should be to put God on display, to help those around us know him better. I, I think about it this way. This is just me personally. I always start close to home. I want I'm burdened to impact the four corners of the world with the gospel and to have brothers in Christ grow and sisters in Christ grow in Christ. But I, I try to start the day. I don't want to do this perfectly, but I try to start the day thinking, Lord, help me to live in a way that my sweet and beloved wife Martha Ann will know you better. Help me, Lord, to care for and pursue my children, my grandchildren in a way that helps them 
not just love Papa, but to know this awesome God better and want to be in a relationship with him. And on the story goes. So we, we need to make that part of our DNA. How we think about living life when you go to work. Are you asking God, Lord, help me by your strength? Give me wisdom, but also enable me to be a light in a dark world. Enable me to help people understand who God is according to your definition. They might be drawn to the gospel through that. And the third, next slide, the third takeaway from the sermon, Jesus putting his Father's character on display through his teaching and miracles did enable him to help people embrace him as the promised Messiah. Now don't get worried. I'm not going to suggest that our takeaway is to be recognized as a Messiah like Jesus was. No, but here's an important truth for us to grasp. What will be the result of our living in a way that puts our amazing God's character on display like Jesus did? What would be the, the impact of, just like John the Baptist understood in John 3.30, our lives pursuing this objective, he must increase, but I must decrease. The key takeaway is we need to pursue lives that make who God is and what he does prominent in our conduct, lives, attitudes, words, pursuits as well. Praise God that Christ functioned as a prophet on the way to being recognized as the Messiah. You praise God we have a God who has always been interested in helping us understand who he is. If we don't understand who he is, it's not God's fault. We need to be learners, look up to him, read his word, revel in who he is in a way that motivates our hearts to live for his glory, to put him on display, to let his definition of who he is be the pattern that we pursue in our lives, imperfectly sure. But that's how God impacts the world where we live. May God help you and me to do that. Thank you, Lord, for the clarity of your word, and it's both uh, the blessing of that and the, and the weight of that. Thank you that you have always been committed to revealing yourself to us, and you also, from the very get-go, want us and wanted your followers to advertise who you are to each other and to the world around us. I pray you'd help me, help the brethren here at Lighthouse to be able to make that our, our DNA, to seek to have that as a, a regular thought, to be strengthened by your Spirit, to be more and to do more than we could do on our own for your glory. We're not sufficient for the task, I realize that, Lord, but I pray you'd help us to own the core value in a way that will impact both our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.